I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. For many Americans, a central reason that the inequality gap may be getting worse can be summed up in one word, jobs. Job openings have been increasing, and yet, as we all know, perhaps personally, perhaps from the news and definitely from the most recent U.S. presidential election, employment prospects for workers left behind by the current economic expansion seem increasingly dim. Now, there are many causes for this trend, many of which come under fierce debate. One is the skills gap. As LinkedIn CEO Jeff Weiner said recently, and I'm quoting him, is there a skills gap? Is there not a skills gap? I think when you think about it in the aggregate across the United States, you can debate it. But unquestionably, at the local level, there are skills gaps. There are cities that are hiring. They're hiring quickly. They've got fast-growing industries, and they don't have the talent with the requisite skills to take on those roles. Jake Schwartz is trying to do something about it. Jake is CEO of General Assembly, a pioneer in education and career transformation, specializing in today's most in-demand skills. Specifically, General Assembly bridges the gap between job seekers and companies needing talent with relevant skills. In just about six years, they've opened 20 campuses on four continents with more than 35,000 graduates. When Jake and I talked, I started with the central question, the global skills gap. Jake, thanks for joining me. Appreciate your time. Great to be here. So I, I should start probably with the central question. I think that, you know, if you, if you answer this one, we probably all go home because I think it's right at the heart of, uh, you know, what you guys do and, and why you exist. Um, what is the global skills gap? Uh, well, the global skills gap is really I, – I, I like to think of it as a meme that's just grown louder and more prominent over the last, you know, at least as long as I've been doing this for seven years, which is um, this idea that while um, unemployment rates, you know, fluctuate, there's a secular trend um, uh, among companies and employers um, in the struggle to filled, fill specific roles that require specific skills. Um, particularly relating to things that are technology-enabled, although not exclusively in tech, um, and that that challenge creates a lot of costs and a lot of frictions in our economy as a whole and um, is a really important issue in terms of our global competitiveness um, in terms of the U.S. versus other economies. And why can't companies solve this on their own? Uh, well, we actually think companies can solve this um, or at least have a big part to play in it. Um, I think the better question is, is how did we get here? And um, a lot of that answer goes back almost 100 years or almost 100 years to the evolution of the U.S. higher educational system, um, which really then you know, started to explode after World War II uh, with the GI Bill. And there became what I like to think of as almost a religion um, in our culture around the attainment of, of bachelor's degrees. And that was not bad in and of itself. Um, you know, I, I'm a product of a bachelor's degree of a liberal arts education. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners are. Um, it was a great coming of age moment. But... Um, in that process, one of the things that got relegated to the very bottom of the heap and was considered the lowest tier of higher education was vocational training. And, and then over the, ne the last century, what's happened is that has sort of been exacerbated um, by the sense that every liberal arts institution believes that not only 
Is it um, not their job to treat, teach practical, um, useful skills? Um, their job is critical thinking, et cetera. Um, but that it was actually actively um, bad for them to be teaching practical skills. And so um, I believe that then the, the final stage of this is that as companies start to feel more pressure on the global stage to be more profitable, to get more productivity out of their workforce, um, there was a de facto apprenticeship system where you come in knowing nothing, you get people coffee, you, you, you learn, you go to meetings, um, and that is how you learn a field. But the problem is that that costs money. And as the drive to get more productivity out of your workforce, as employee tenure at a single corporation goes down, um, there is less and less interest in making those types of investments in employees over the long run. And, and so um, they are now stuck in a world where the people coming out of schools don't have the skills they need, and they no longer have the internal capabilities to build those skills um, at the right sort of return on investment, you know, cost-benefit ratio for them. It is a really current issue, obviously, because much of the discussion around uh, unemployment and jobs in America centers around and, and education um, really centers around this question of, uh, you know, skills and the opportunities to learn skills and what's the role of a bachelor degree and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, do you find as you're kind of listening to the um, current conversation and, and public officials and our, our politicians and business leaders as well, talking about uh, that, that intersection between education and jobs. Are you just, are you listening to that and you're like, exactly, that's, you know, you, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think for us, this is our core mission. I mean, our, our mission is to empower the world to pursue the work they love. And a key piece of that is giving the, the, the right on-ramps, affordable on-ramps, um, two interesting careers that are relevant, that are growing, um, and the skills and community that go along with that. And um, we believe, I mean, this is why we're doing this, that this is one of the most important issues of our time. I think it, it has political consequences. It definitely has economic consequences. Um, and, and we have communities all over this country that are going to be facing unprecedented amounts of economic disruption as the economies in those regions shift, um, as everybody more moves towards technology, as um, the risk of disruption uh, is no longer measured in decades, but in, in years, um, there is a lot of question about what are people going to do for work? How are they going to um, be able to participate in all of the exciting growth an activity that we see um, in technology and innovation, and and how as a society do we make sure that there aren't just a few small pockets with all the jobs and all the capital and everywhere else is just um, you know in the services industry. So how does the program work? Talk me through the, the process, and, and it, it seems like that you come at it from both directions. You come at it from the um, individual, you know, employee education level, but then you also come at it from the company level. So yeah, I may have that wrong, so if I do, just take me through the program. How, do, how, does, uh, how does it work? You're absolutely right. I would say it's, it's important to sort of mention how we started, and, and, you know, the early days, the question was, could we sort of – rehabilitate the image of vocational training and and could we sort of 
build programs that had a good enough return on investment that people would pay out of pocket outside of the sort of, you know, very large sort of governmental subsidy scheme in order to get this education. And, and, but then, you know, and so if you look at what we did, we built these beautiful campuses, with great furniture, we had incredible teachers and a community and alumni network. You know, it, it feels like graduate school is the frame of reference, but we're teaching much more practical skills and much more focused in shorter period of time. Like what? Give me, give me the examples for our listeners. So data science, web development, digital marketing, product management, um, UX design. You know, these were the skills. I mean, even early on, we saw that companies were dying to hire, that there was a huge growth in the need for teams that had these capabilities. And there were not a lot of formal programs out there that were sort of designed to create that pipeline of talent that these companies needed. And, and, who's, and who comes to you? Or who, who, are you looking for the 20-year-old who maybe you know, went to high school but didn't go to college and is now looking for you know, a, a job like that or training like that? Are you looking at the 45- to 50-year-old who you know, hasn't grown up you know, in a digital environment necessarily and needs, you know, realizes that, that she or he needs new skills? Who, who's your target there? When we started, the because the idea was, can we sort of create a vocational school with a graduate school feel, our focus was all 20 and 30-somethings that were either looking to change their career or upgrade their existing career. And almost, um, you know, the vast, vast majority already have college degrees. And in fact, if you listen to how we talk, you know, there's a lot of people in the space who love to talk about disrupting college or, you know, get, you know destroying college. We never really talk that way because I think that's a long, you know, college is definitely going to go through some changes and some transformations, but I think it's pretty core to our educational system today and we're all products of it. And it would be pretty hypocritical to say, oh, you know, nobody needs that anymore. But so we were really focused on the graduate school part of the market and, and thinking of this as a way of sort of, you know, for that kid who doesn't know what they want to do with their life necessarily. They know they like certain things they are interested maybe in startups or tech or whatever. Uh, you know, when I was graduating from college, I mean, there was a tremendous pressure to figure out what I was going to do. Um, and, you know, at one point I applied to law school even because that, you know, for a lot of people who go to college, when they don't know what to do, the next advice that their parents or their parents' friends give them is go to law school. You can do anything with a law degree. Um, and so, you know, I've always joked that actually, like, our slogan should be saving people from law school since 2010. <laughs> um, now, I mean, it's obviously much broader than that. We're much more technical than law school, but you sort of get an idea of that was the initial value proposition that we kind of went to the world with, and it worked incredibly well, um, you know, to the point where we now have, you know, we started with one classroom in New York, and we now have 100 classrooms all over the world. We're in over, you know, 20 cities, um, you know, on I think five different continents, um, you know, and we have 50,000 alumni of these three month programs. Um, it's been a pretty powerful sort of journey for us. But, you know, at the same time, we know that the opportunity is much, much bigger than that. And to the, the, you know, the reality is there's a couple axes of which there's tons of opportunity that we're, we're just now sort of starting to really tackle. And it's super exciting. So, um, you know, the first one is, is that, you know, for every one person who has the wherewithal, either the savings or the parents or the, the credit to be able to take one of our, you know, fairly expensive courses with, and it has a great return on investment. It's about a year payback, all that kind of stuff. But it's still a lot of money. 
there are 10 people who are, you know, would love a new career, are eager to learn, but do not necessarily have those means for whatever reason. And, um, you know, that is one of many reasons why we've, over the last year or so, started to see tremendous traction among working directly with employers um, to create essentially what we call a talent pipeline as a service or new ways of, of using learning, not as an L&D, learning and development function, not as like a little upskilling, but as a truly transformational exercise that can give you a new talent pipeline coming in. It can also be used to radically reskill existing employees whose skills might be obsolete and who might be at the risk of getting laid off. Um, and sort of giving um, employers a new tool and a reason and a rationale to invest meaningfully in the transformation of people's skills. And I believe that, you know, for as successful as we've been on the consumer side with this model of return on investment, the return on investment for a company is much, much larger. And so, um, you know, I think that's really important. Um, the other thing that that unlocks is there are a lot of there are a lot of skills gaps that don't happen to be the super sexy jobs that college grads want, you know, in the big cities around technology and design and things like that. There are those skills gaps um, are meaningful, and more importantly, the bridges between education and employment in those industries tend to be very burdensome. Um, you know, I, this is a great example. Um, you know, medical assistants tend to make you know forty five, fifty thousand dollars a year if they're lucky, and you know the tuition of a lot of programs to become a medical assistant could be that salary, you know, a year's worth of salary, if not more. Um, and that is a heavy debt burden for someone um, at that level in our sort of current socioeconomic system. And I think that there are a lot of really much more innovative ways to sort of break through the, the friction and the waste in our talent acquisition models that we do as a society with companies um, to sort of bridge those gaps in much more cost-efficient ways for everybody, for the, for the employer, for the employee, and for society at large. So we're thinking, we're thinking about, I think this, you know, working with employers is probably the most exciting part of what we're doing. It's, it's obviously very timely right now. And, and, and frankly, like, uh, you know, we're almost, we're working as fast as we can for, to, to serve the amount of demand that we're seeing for that. Um, and then obviously we, I'm thinking a lot bigger than just tech in terms of how do we take this model and apply it to any place where there is a shortage of skilled workers and where we can create really great pathways for people to join the workforce in an exciting growth career. Yeah, particularly when you know when you think about uh, various companies, various industries, and the investment that they put into employer employees or workers, you know, in the first years, and then as those skills need to evolve because different requirements come along, like the ability to do digital or UX or design or something like that. Um, and, and I could see. I mean, do they look at you potentially? Maybe this is the business model or, or business channel that you're thinking about. Um, do they think of you as like a, an outsourced training and development capability? Is that uh, is that one of the areas that you're thinking? Uh, yeah. I mean, not so much. Well, I think that's how it started. But mm -hmm. what we mm -hmm. found is that um, you know, they, there's these departments in a lot of companies called L and D. Yeah. Yep. And and the problem is that these companies over the years, for very understandable reasons, have unfortunately sort of relegated these very optimistic, well-meaning people in L&D to what is essentially procurement functions. 
They're not giving a ton of budget. There's not, they're not really tied to measurable business outcomes. And, and so because of that, their job is almost to buy some kind of training as cheap as possible for everyone in their organization. Mostly as like a check the box kind of talking point, you know, in the annual employee review as much as anything else, right? And it's not results driven. It's not necessarily about the business, except for maybe the most general level. And part of our insight and part of what's driving us today is that what we are seeing is that you have to contrast that with the talent acquisition budgets, right? So, so on a per person basis, the the L and D budget for a company, you know, is usually around like a thousand dollars a year um, for a single, per, you know, on talent acquisition side, for especially for technical roles, that number could be thirty or forty thousand dollars per head. And and that disconnect is what where we see sort of one of the biggest sort of tragedies in our system that we think learning is such a powerful toolkit if it's treated as a talent acquisition strategy, not as a sort of passive L&D function. So I love going and talking to L&D people because my job is to elevate that. My job is to say, look, I want a 10x your budget. And I go to talent acquisition people and I say, you know, look. You're, you know, you need more tools in your toolkit because you're struggling and you're not hitting your targets and it's hard out there right now. There are not enough t- skilled people out there in the world. And, and for both of those groups that both, by the way, sit under HR, although rarely talk to each other, this is, represents a really big opportunity. And we're really trying to fuse those two things together. Now, now you, you mentioned on the, you know, on the individual side, on the employee or want to be the, the person who's trying to gain the skills. You mentioned you know, 100 classrooms and, and 20 cities. Mm-hmm. Do I need to physically be there? What about online learning? And how do you, see, you, know, how do you compete with, you know, if I want to learn a skill, I can go, you know, there's so many... Uh, you know, Coursera, Education Act, you know, even, you know, there, there's so many online education capabilities. Um, w- w- how do you think about that? And do I need to physically be in a location to, to, to do your stuff? When we started, we were 100% offline because at the time, I mean, frankly, we didn't know that much about what we were doing. And we knew there would be a lot more opportunities for feedback and innovation and agility if we were really in the, you know, in person seeing the students and the faces and interacting with them. Um, now over time we have a whole suite. We are, we like to say we are modality neutral. We do synchronous, we do asynchronous, we do online, we do offline. Um, we are big, big believers in what, in what is called blended education, that there are things that software does really, really well. And there are things that in-person interaction in a classroom environment does really, really well. And the best solution is to mix those things together in, in the optimal way. And, um, and that's sort of, you know, I, you know, there is a lot of hype around online as the answer to all of our woes, uh, from, from a learning perspective. The problem with that logic is it's typically driven by a sense that it, it, it seems like a solution because it lowers cost because online can, asynchronous online can be zero marginal cost. And that's very, very attractive. The problem is there is nearly zero evidence of, 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 you know, success at scale, reliable success at scale is what I, how I should put it, um, around online-only learning, doing the kind of things that we're able to do in our classroom, which has truly transformed somebody's skill sets um, in, in meaningful and useful ways. Um, online content, is it's like a Netflix account, right? It's, it's great, 
And, you know, there are a lot of books you can read that will help you be better at your job. There's lots of videos you can watch that will help you be better at your job. But it's very, very hard to take that level of content and transform it into a truly integrated, valuable skill set for the workplace. And, and so it all exists on a spectrum, and I think the world needs all of it. But there is a very, you know, you said, like, what, maybe I should just go to Coursera. And I would say, well, that's great. Um, if you do that, there's probably less than a 10% chance that you will get to the end of that program. And there is probably, uh, you know, an even smaller percent chance that after you've, com- if you've completed that program, that you have the full suite of skills to be newly employable in that field. And, and, and so that is sort of the model that, you know, we're pretty, we, we believe pretty strongly that, that, you know, Education is not about content. It's actually about outcomes and results. And as such, um, you know, we, we, we really are, are strong believers that a blended modality is the way to go. And I would expect that the uh, relationships and, and the, the, the business, let's say the B2B side of what you do as well, um, being able to connect that uh, ultimately is probably pretty good for the uh, folks who, who you, you bring in. Jake, I've also heard talk about something that you seem to call radical reskilling. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, radical reskilling is something that we've just we've been doing a lot of, um, you know, in sort of programs we've created over the last, you know, eighteen months or so um, that seem to be very successful and are growing very fast. And the idea, you know, I can give you an example. You know, we've there, there's a large company which I won't name um, that you know had um, an issue of you know, a bunch of great loyal employees on their payroll who um, had skills that they knew were not going to be needed, you know, within the next year or two. And, you know, as an HR organization, they were very worried about that. and They feared losing contextual knowledge about the company and all that stuff. And more importantly, they weren't really sure, you know, because they also needed to, at the same time, uh, get people with the more up-to-date skills in their organization, and they weren't sure where they were going to find those people. And so we worked with this company to build a pretty you know, comprehensive program to identify people, put them in our three-month immersive program. So essentially they were being you know, compensated by their employer coming to our program for a full-time 12-week thing. And at the end of it, they were already guaranteed, if they successfully completed the program, um, a, a sort of new role using those new skills they just got in the company for the foreseeable future. And, um, you know, if that was just one company, I would say, isn't that interesting? Like, maybe we should do more of this. But this has become something, you know, there are uh, double at this point, and it's pretty early days, you know, we have Fortune 500 companies, you know, double digits numbers of companies who are, are, are doing these kinds of programs with us. And we think in a lot of ways it's a model for the future to solve both this reskilling problem, but it also, you know, what makes it work and what makes the economics work is you're solving that, re, the, that, that sort of talent acquisition issue that you have at the same time. And, um, and I, think, I think we're going to see a lot more of it, and um, we're very excited in sort of gearing a lot of our sort of future products around that kind of um, experience. 
And how do your courses get designed? And I, I assume that they're the same. If I take one of your courses in London and I take, you know, the, the same course or, you know, in New York, I, I assume it's the same, uh, you know, same curriculum, if you will, just different instructors. How, how do the courses get designed and, and how do you kind of keep them updated and, and that sort of thing? Well, um, there's a, there's a bunch, there's a couple different questions to unpack there. You know, one is, is that, you know, uh, our philosophy has always been that because we're so focused on return on investment, because we're so focused on employable skills, the curriculum gets built day one by building the an understanding and a rubric around what does the employer want to see, right? What is valuable to them? And we tend to aggregate that um, across some industries and, and different types, sizes of employers to make sure we're getting the right mix of stuff. Um, but that is sort of the first step, right? Then we typically pair an instructional design team with some subject matter experts to build out sort of version one of that curriculum. Um, and then typically the subject matter experts also become the sort of the, the guinea pig instructors for that because they know it the best and it's the best way to learn. Now, by the, before that course is even finished, we have already started going back and looking at, okay, this was successful, that wasn't. That feels a little irrelevant, and you know it feels like we're missing a, uh, an emphasis here. And we're already swapping out modules to make it even a better curriculum. And almost every iteration of the course, we will do an exercise of saying, okay, what did we learn about how applicable this curriculum is? As well as we'll start to get feedback from employers on the people who come through that program. You know, it would be nice if they knew more of this or you know that that kind of stuff. And so it's a very iterative, very fast-moving process of iteration, which is, I think, another way that we sort of, you know, typically in a, in a traditional university setting, it takes about three years to get approval for a new curriculum from the regional accrediting board. So, you know, our ability to be very agile, very quick moving, um, and, and I think another key piece of this is that our courses are always taught by practitioners. So we are only finding people who have done this for a living are very up-to-date in their skills. And what we see our duty is we spend a lot of time and investment making them good teachers. And so a lot of that process early on, because they know the subject better very well, is helping them become the best teachers that they can be. And we find that that's very motivating for these practitioners. Um, it turns out there's a lot of people who've always wanted to be a teacher or had that experience. But because of the way our, our world works, it, it never seemed like a path for them because, you know, Maybe you couldn't make enough money or there were there were other things they didn't like about it. And so we find there's a, a very passionate community of practitioners in almost every subject that um, are very excited to get this opportunity to teach the next generation. To close out, you, you get a lot, as well a great deal of attention. Um, some of it recently came from uh, Representative Joe Kennedy. How, what was that like? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, we've known uh, Congressman Kennedy for a while now, and he's very interested in these issues of skills training and reskilling and, um, you know, what that looks like going forward. You know, in his own district, he's paid close attention to the successful programs there. And so he led a, a great roundtable of a bunch of community entrepreneurs, executives, um, and others around sort of workforce development as an issue. And, and what can we as the business community do to, um, you know, drive that forward, uh, especially while there's not a ton of leadership coming, you know, at the government level on these issues. Excellent. Uh, Jake, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, I enjoyed it anytime. This is fun. 